At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host Austin McCormick, and we have the privilege of having Dr. Michael Haken on with us again. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Haken. That's great to be with you. And in this episode, we're going to talk about your newest edition of your book, The Empire of the Holy Spirit. And it's been republished by H&E or Hesed and Amet. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the title and what exactly you meant by it? And also just what has sparked your interest in the person and work of the Holy Spirit? Yes, the term empire um, probably is a bit of a a grabber. the normal word that we would probably use is kingdom. And I'm, I think I'm using empire there pretty well the same way as you would use kingdom. Um, so the idea of reign, <clears throat> not so much geographical extent, but the rule of the Holy Spirit, the reign of the Holy Spirit. I think empire probably captures that a bit better than rule or reign, um, but be that as it may. So that's the the idea, the 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 area which the areas in which the Holy Spirit ruin, rules in the Christian life or reigns in the Christian life, uh, the fact of the fact the fact that uh, in the New Testament understanding of the Spirit's work, He is uh, carrying out the the Lordship of Christ into our lives, and uh, so those are the kind of bundle of ideas: rule, reign, lordship. Um, I've had an interest in the Holy Spirit right from the beginning, I guess. Um, and I think probably what kindled it was being involved in the charismatic movement in the very late seventies when I first was converted. Um, I wouldn't describe myself as a charismatic, uh, in the technical sense of that term, but the charismatic movement, and I was probably fairly heavily involved for about five years. Um, I wouldn't have called myself a Pentecostal. I thought of charismatics as distinct from Pentecostalism, which I think it is. Um, so I never, I would never have held, I never held the, the idea that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is identified um, by the sign gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, but I would have believed in the ongoing reality of uh, all of the gifts of the Spirit, etc., etc. But I think that that gave me a, a, an interest in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, as I began to move out of that kind of sphere, um, I began to recognize that uh, people who would describe themselves as evangelical, or more specifically reformed evangelicals, for a variety of reasons in the 20th century, uh, lost touch with uh, um, the, an interest, at least, in the work and person of the Holy Spirit. And they very much became, um, in not in a good sense, but very much became uh, Christ-focused to the exclusion of the work of the Spirit. 
Uh, some of that, I think, is a reaction against Pentecostalism, against the charismatic movement, because there are excesses there. We didn't want to be identified with that. But in doing so, we really lost touch with, I think, a significant part of the Reformed and Evangelical tradition. Um, if you go back to the 16th, 17th century, uh, the Puritan movement is very much a movement that is focused on the work and person of the spirit uh, and interest in his, uh, his ministry in the uh, New Covenant uh, church, as it were. And that's inherited by you know, the various evangelicals in the revivals of the 18th and 19th centuries. And then you get um, uh, two things. One is you get the emergence of Pentecostalism, which I think scares a lot of evangelicals silly. Um, so that you have a situation today where I, I, I do think uh, you know, there are evangelicals who are afraid of the Holy Spirit. Um, they're afraid if they pray to the Spirit or they call upon the Spirit to, to be poured out in power, that who knows what might happen. And um, uh, that's really, I think that's a failure, a very fundamental failure to understand the work and person of the Spirit. It's also, I think, indicative of a failure of teaching but I think the second thing that happened was the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 19, which came to a head in the 1920s, but had ongoing impact all through probably through to the 50s and 60s, in which uh, the person and work of the spirit was really not a central focus of theological controversy. And what often happens in such periods of time is that um, the, the lion's share of interest becomes focused in other areas. And so um, in the 20s and so on, it would have been the miracles of Jesus, the virgin birth, um, the resurrection, uh, the inspiration and errancy of the Bible. Those sorts of things became the central focus for uh, fundamentalists and then for also for evangelicals as they, they came out of that movement. So I think those two things, um, and I, I do think that uh, the rationalism of Western society, which begins pretty heavily in the 18th century and has permeated pretty well every area of life by the 20th century, has had an acidic effect upon, uh, upon uh, evangelical culture. Uh, we tend to think of ourselves as being not shaped by worldliness, and I suppose, you know, in some, some ways that, that obviously is that's definitely true, but I think there are other ways more insidious uh, in which uh, Western ways of thinking have kind of seeped into the life of the church. And one of them is the anti-supernaturalism of our Western culture. And it's, it's caused us to be skeptical about things that our forebears would uh, they weren't um, they weren't gullible, but they were more they were more inclined to believe extraordinary works of the spirit than we are. So I think that there are probably those three things, um, and um, the kind of experience of the charismatic movement gave me an interest in the spirit, and I saw that there was an area here that needed to be addressed from a historical standpoint. Um, in the first chapter of your book, you discuss the final paragraph of the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. Um, so if you can, help our listeners and us understand what the church has confessed about the Holy Spirit. 
Yeah, so that final paragraph was crafted in 381. Um, the Nicene Creed, as we call it, um, was written first in 325, the summer of 325. But the article on the Holy Spirit simply said, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And um, again, tying back to that idea that where there is controversy, that becomes the focus of attention. Well, the the focus of attention was on Christology because Arius, the, the reason, the, his, the te his teachings being the reason for the calling of the Council of 325 had denied specifically the full deity of the Son. The Spirit, he mentions, albeit very briefly. And so they, the center of debate in the Council of Nicaea in 325 was the, the deity of the Son. And so you have a statement crafted of which the most famous part is probably the fact that the spirit, the son is the shares one being with the father. And, but of the spirit, it simply says, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't become a subject of debate until the three late three fifties. And then particularly in the three seventies leading up to the council of Constantinople. So when the Constantinople council of Constantinople was called basically to, to really bring to an end um, nearly 60 years of controversy, um, they recognized that they needed to draft something about the spirit. There had to be more said in light of the emerging uh, controversy and questions uh, in the 370s. And so the statement that is uh, uh, that we know uh, that was crafted at the time, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father who is worshiped and glorified together with the Father and the Son who spoke through the prophets. So that statement is an, an affirmation of the fullness of the deity of the Holy Spirit, that he is fully God. He shares to the full uh, the attributes of the Father and the Son um, and is therefore uh, to be worshipped and glorified with the Father and the Son. He is not the Son because the Son is eternally begotten, but the Spirit proceeds eternally. It doesn't say eternally, but it that's the implication that he the procession of the spirit from the father within the Godhead is an eternal procession. Of course, the, the, the man who crafted this and probably Gregory of Nyssa, uh, the younger brother of Basil of Caesarea is the key figure. They did not believe that by these, this terminology that you therefore understood uh, God. It was a terminology that had to be used to guard the church against the heresy, in this case of not Arianism per se, of modalism. Um, which fails to distinguish the persons of the Godhead. Now, later in the Western tradition, uh, when that creed is passed down in Latin-speaking churches in the West, uh, there will be a phrase added to uh, that uh, phrase, he proceeds from the Father, it'll be, and the Son, he proceeds from the Father and the Son. And it's known as the filioque, the word phrase, uh, and the Son in, in Latin is expressed by um, the uh, Philly, by the term filioque. Um, but that aside, that, that that statement then is a response to two things. One is the, the denial of the Spirit's deity, but also an attempt to avoid modalism. Moving on to, to particularly the Spirit's work um, in sanctification, what, is, what exactly is the Spirit's role in that work, in sanctification? Yeah, the, the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, if, if I 
do not go away. The comforter, that is the spirit, uh, also in the Greek, the parakletos, the paraclete will not come to you. So uh, the, the advent of Christ, the, the ascension of Christ, rather, sorry, the ascension of Christ is being seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, it, 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 it leads to the Father bestowing upon the Son the privilege of granting the Holy Spirit. And we see that uh, theologically talked about in the Pentecost speech of Peter in Acts. But we also see it in the, um, the outpouring of the Spirit. So the Spirit's coming to the church in power. Um, is to replicate in the lives of Christians, individually and corporately, the person, the, the, the character and the ministry of Christ. And so all that we, all that we enjoy as believers in terms of prayer, worship, um, every element of, of the transformation of character, uh, the production of virtue in our lives, uh, the enablement of fellowship and friendship in the gospel, the enablement of mission. All of this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And sanctification captures uh, what uh, Christ does to Christ does in justified believers. Those who have been made, declared righteous are now made righteous. And it's the spirit who does that. It's, it's uh, a spirit acting in the stead of Christ. Um, Tertullian describes the Holy Spirit in this case as the vicar of Christ. Uh, the Latin word vicarius has the idea of one who stands in the place of another. Um, it's interesting if you look at the Latin uh, development of that term theologically or progression of that term theologically. For Tertullian, the Holy Spirit is the vicarius of Christ, the vicar of Christ. Uh, about 50 years later, Cyprian says the bishop is the vicar of Christ. And then eventually, by the time you get to the mid-5th century, Leo the Great, the bishop of Rome is the vicar of Christ. And one of the problems with, I think, Roman Catholic teaching in the Middle Ages is that it, 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 it usurps the position of the Holy Spirit. And I first came across that thought in a throwaway comment, so to speak, of Sinclair Ferguson, where he said that the, the travesty of the medieval period is the way in which the church sought to replace the role of the Holy Spirit in, in every area of life. And I, I think there's some truth to that. Uh, the Spirit is given to us uh, to perfect holiness in us, uh, to enable us to live lives of godliness, um, to make real what we already are. Uh, the, the Pauline ethic is to be what we are. We are righteous, declared righteous in the sight of, of God. Therefore, we are to live that way. In light of who we are, we're to live holy lives. Um, living a holy life does not uh, uh, merit favor with God per se, because we are justified on the basis of the flawless righteousness of Christ and on the basis of his merits. All of our righteousness is still, even in the best of our holy acts and holy temper, temperament, we still need forgiveness for areas of sinfulness in those things. But the Spirit is perfecting holiness in us. He's making real what we are, uh, etc. So sanctification is very much the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And what then is the relationship between the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Word? Well, because the Spirit, one of the great means of grace in the Christian life is the Word of God, and the Spirit inspired that Word. Um, The Spirit uses the Word for a variety of means in our life. It uses the Word, obviously, to give us intellectual foundations for understanding what what it means to be a Christian, what is Christianity. Um, that's the, the word of God. Of course, there is the tradition of the way in which the church has interacted with the word of God, and that's not negligible. But in final foundation, the tradition is helpful insofar as it is founded upon and is in agreement with the word of God. Um, the word of God is a comfort to the believer. It's a light to the believer in terms of guidance. Um, God has given us the word as a vehicle to to live lives to please him so you know second timothy 3 16 and 17 you know the man of god is uh uh, being equipped for every good work um competent to to counsel and to 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 teach and preach and so on well that's that statement follows immediately upon paul's affirmation of the the uh, inspiration of the, of the word of God, because the word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is capable of enabling us to understand what it means to live a holy life um, uh, and uh, uh, an encouragement to us in living that life, a comfort to us, strength to us, etc. Um, it's, it's quite clear, I think, that there are certain areas of the Christian life we wouldn't know anything about if it were not for the word of God. So we, w- we wouldn't know um, about uh, the necessity of baptism, believer's baptism. Um, we wouldn't know about the Lord's Supper. Um, there are certain areas of conscience that would prick our minds. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans, that, you know, the, that there is this inner sense of who God is and what is right and what is wrong. But there's a lot of what historically have been called positive commands, those commands we would not have any access to without the light of Holy Scripture. And so Scripture is vital um, for understanding um, uh, numerous areas of the Christian life in addition to obviously, uh, you know, living lives of, of holiness. And piggybacking off of that, the word is obviously one of the great gifts God has given us, but also the the privilege of prayer. So how does the Holy Spirit assist us in prayer? Well, first of all, I think, again, you've got a number of passages. You have Ephesians, uh, pray in the spirit. Uh, Jude says the same. And um, so one narrow interpretation of that has been the charismatic Pentecostal interpretation. Well, that's got to be praying in, in tongues. Um, but um, Paul, if you look at the surrounding context, particularly the Ephesians passage, it's broader, uh, even granted that there might be such a thing today as praying in tongues. This is much broader than anything like that. Um, and so what, what does that mean? Um, well, I think there are probably a number of areas here that kind of flow out of that. Um, it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to come into the presence of God and to know God as Father. Um, and once you, you, you start to think about the reality of who God is, 
uh, a holy God who hates sin, uh, we would never draw near to him if we didn't have the consciousness of, of God as our father, as a Christian's. Um, thus, you have a passage like Galatians um, that the Holy Spirit has come into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, Romans 8, verse 15 as well. So uh, the, the very fact that we, we can even draw near to God and conceive of him as a father is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not um, left to ourselves, we'd run. And so the Holy Spirit enables us to come to God. The Holy Spirit enables us to persevere in prayer. Prayer is is probably one of the most difficult elements of the Christian life, I think. And it's the Holy Spirit who prevents us from falling asleep, uh, so to speak, um, who uh, helps us to focus our thoughts rather than wandering thoughts. Um, it's amazing how you can be wide awake, you go to prayer and you suddenly find yourself drowsy and dozy, um, not too dissimilar from the disciples, you know, falling asleep in the garden. Now, there are ways of dealing with that. And so for me, I normally, uh, I've often prayed standing up and I've yet to fall asleep standing up. And I, I think I learned this from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis talks about how he started the, the, the kind of practice of, of praying, walking around his garden. And uh, it, it's not so much the garden that is helpful, but the, 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 he's up physically, got his, you know, he's got the, the heart going and the, the juice is flowing and he's not going to fall asleep when he's on his knees or sitting down. Uh, most of us as evangelicals tend to pray sitting down. Well, that's, that's, that's nearly as bad as, you know, lying on your bed. I, you know, when David, that's actually a phrase I've always befuddled me. You know, when David says he's meditating on God lying on his bed, I mean, that, as soon as I lie down, I'm asleep. So I, that's, that's not me. Um, so, uh, but I, I think at a, at, a, at a deeper level, granted, you know, you can look, do certain techniques to avoid falling asleep, but there, there is a, it's, if prayer is what the scriptures claim it to be, that the prayer of a, a righteous man availeth much, it's not surprising that Satan will seek to, to prevent us praying, will seek to hamper our prayers. And so praying is a battle. And uh, we need the Spirit's help. So sometimes we need to cry out to the Holy Spirit, help me to pray. Not only help me to, 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 to cleave to God as, as a loving Heavenly Father, but help me to pray. And then there is a, an area, it's the, it's the only passage in the New Testament that talks about this, Romans 8, where Paul says, we, we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit, with words too, too deep, for, too, for, with words that cannot be uttered, um, groans and the father hears those prayers um, uh, according to his will. Um, it's really a mysterious passage, Romans 8, 26 to 27. Um, the Puritans tended to read that passage to mean, of course, the Holy Spirit can't be praying. It, it's got to be the Holy Spirit motivates us to pray. And so they would refer it back to what I was earlier talking about, the way in which the Holy Spirit is a help to us in prayers. I honestly think the Puritans are wrong here. Uh, I think they're, uh, I've looked at quite a number of them from John Owen, David Clarkson. Um, I forget who else, maybe Thomas, uh, definitely Thomas Manton, John Flavel. They all come up with this idea that the Holy Spirit cannot be actually praying. But if you look at the Greek, uh, the Greek text, the larger text, 
Paul talks about three types of groaning. Um, he says the creation is groaning to see the revelation of the sons of God. We are groaning. And then he says the Holy Spirit groans. And so I, for the Puritan argument to hold force, it would mean that Paul is repeating that idea twice. But instead, I think what he's doing is he's showing that God has so entered into our suffering, not only in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, but even the Holy Spirit uh, shares with us the, 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 the groaning that we have in prayer. And uh, he is praying. Uh, remarkable as it is. Now, obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity prayed here in this world. And obviously, there is a there is a real sense in which he's still interceding in his humanity. Uh, the Puritan argument in was, OK, that's fine for the humanity of Jesus. But the deity of the Holy Spirit, normally you pray one prays to an uh, from an inferior to a superior. They can understand why the Lord Jesus in his humanity is praying because his inhumanity is less than the deity. Um, my problem is founders, that the, the, their, their argument for me founders on the fact, but the text says the Holy Spirit prays. We have groans too deep for words. That's what the text says. The text doesn't say the Holy Spirit moves us to pray. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit inspires us to pray. It says the Holy Spirit prays and he does so in groans too deep for words. So um, I think there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit is obviously helping us to pray the various aspects of that. Um, showing us a loving Heavenly Father, showing us the way through our Lord Jesus Christ, reminding us that because of him and through him, we have access to the Father, Ephesians 2.18. But there is also a sense in which in that, that moment of prayer, uh, the Spirit is praying, and the Father hears the Spirit's prayers. I'll give you a good example is the prayers of Monica, the mother of Augustine, that he would never leave her side. In book five of Augustine's Confessions, she's, she, Augustine tells us she prayed that God would not let her son out of her sight because she was confident that the only way a son could ever get converted was if she had to be around him. And you have a loving mother, obviously, a loving Christian mother who's prayed for her son's conversion. But uh, you get the sense here also, she's a bit overprotective. And, um, and then Augustine says, but, the, but God did not answer her immediate prayer that he might answer her deeper prayer. Her deeper prayer was that the spirit, that the, he might get converted. Her immediate prayer was, don't let him leave out North Africa. In other words, what was happening when she was praying, please, Lord, don't let him, don't let him out of my sight. The Holy Spirit was praying, send him away. And that's the prayer that's heard. And that's the deeper prayer, because by sending him away, he goes to Rome. It's a disaster. He ends up in Milan where he's converted. So I think that illustrates very beautifully the... The, um, the Pauline passage in Romans 8, 26, 27. It's really, it is a very mysterious passage. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon preached on it. It's a very striking text. And um, I do think it's not until the 18th century, the Puritans, I think, uniformly misunderstand it. Um, and that, that's, I don't say that lightly. I say that after I've studied them on the subject at some length, and I've never come across one that takes it literally. Uh, the first time, I think, is Ralph Erskine, a Scottish Presbyterian in um, 
a sermon he gave probably in the 1730s in which he takes it literally as the spirit of praying. Continuing on the Holy Spirit and prayer, um, in the chapter titled Expecting the Spirit, use the example of Corinth as a case study of Holy Spirit wrought revival. Uh, Paul had requested that the church in Thessalonica pray for his ministry there. So the question is, what does this example teach us about corporate prayer in revival? Yeah, I think, again, one of the things that I found in studying uh, the subject of prayer and the spirit is that there is a corporate dimension that, again, I think we it's something we have lost for a variety of reasons. Western society is deeply individualistic, and it's not a recent thing. It's a very old thing. Um, the origins of it go back into the high Middle Ages with the emergence of probably the early, the early stages of the Renaissance, um, which is not so much a, a movement against uh, the church in its early stages, but rather an affirmation of individual human autonomy. Um, by the time you get to the Reformation, individualism is becoming stamped as a major characteristic of Western culture. And the Reformation, in its affirmation that everybody is responsible for their own sin, and therefore you must be born again, is a, that's a biblical affirmation. But within the context of the Reformation, which is a Western phenomenon, it actually, ex, it actually heightens the individualism to some degree. So one of the unintended consequences, I think, of the Reformation, and I'm not sure how it could have been avoided in one sense, given the larger cultural background, is a heightened emphasis on the individual in Western culture. To the point that by today, individualism is just so, it, it, is, it fills the entirety of the air we breathe. It's very difficult for us, even as, as evangelical Christians who are wanting to be loyal to Holy Scripture, to break free from its, 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 its influence. In the early church, if you go through, you, you, I'll give you a passage that's interesting, and then I'll come back to the Corinth passage. In the book of Philemon, um, if you read the Greek, uh, the, the early part of Philemon, where Paul greets the church that meets in the house of Philemon, he uses the plural second person um, for uh, his his is imperatives and even uh, the, the pronouns he sometimes uses. And then once he starts to address Philemon about the issue that he wants to speak to him about, namely Onesimus, he moves to a second person singular in his imperatives and in his, um, in his use of the, of the pronoun, the second person pronoun, until he hits verse 22 where he says, um, please prepare a guest room for me. And uh, that's a second person singular imperative. And then he adds the reason, because I hope to be released to you through your prayers. Nothing, nothing, nothing prepares you for the fact that he suddenly, when he shifts, when he, when he says your prayers, he shifts to a second person plural pronoun. So for the, la the previous about 18 verses, he's been using second person singulars. And then suddenly in the middle of this, he uses a second person plural, which tells me 
That's very profound in one sense, because it tells me that Paul does not conceive of the, the, the impact of, of not simply Philemon's individual prayers, but it's, it's, it's Philemon as he gathers with the church. He, Paul expects them to be praying corporately for various things, one of which will be his release. Now to back up, um, you find a number of places where Paul doesn't exactly say to pray for revival, but that's the idea behind it. And one of them is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, which Paul wrote a while in Corinth to the church in Thessalonica. In other words, if you want to look at the um, kind of background in the book of Acts, it's Acts chapter 18, where Paul is in Corinth, ministering in Corinth. And he tells the church in Thessalonica, they're, they're second person imperatives. Uh, please pray, pray that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified, even as it was among you, and that uh, the plans of evil wicked men might not prosper. And what he's praying, what he's asking prayer for is nothing less than revival, that men and women will be saved, that they would come to, to adore both the scriptures and the God who gave the scriptures, and that God would prevent wicked men from hindering the ministry of the word in Corinth. And that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 12 down to 17 or, or so. Um, Paul is brought before Gallio, the Roman governor of Achaia. The center of Roman governorship would have been in uh, Corinth, not Cor Athens, in that part of Greece. And um, before Gallio, before uh, Paul can even open his mouth to defend himself, because the Jews have dragged him hither to basically get Gallio to kick him out of the city. They can't do it, but Gallio, as the Roman authority, can. Um, Gallio rules in Paul's favor. He basically tells the Jews to shut up. Uh, as far as he's concerned, it's got nothing to do with the Roman governor. They, they, want, they want to make it a matter of Roman law. They actually cite the word, this man's disobeying the law, that is Roman law. He says, no, no, it's a matter of your law, Jewish law, which has no, no, no authority or prerogative in, in Corinth. And um, he boots them out of the courtroom. And that's a very important precedent it, at a very high governmental level. Uh, Gallio is the younger brother of the tutor of the emperor Nero, namely a man named Seneca, a very well-known Stoic philosopher, but he was also very high up in the government. And whatever Gallio then said would have enormous precedent. And so you see God's answer to, to that part of Paul's prayer, uh, corporate prayer, but even more, you see the, the revival that takes place at Corinth. On, on any strength of imagination, what God does in Corinth is really nothing less than revival. Um, the ruler of the synagogue is converted in Acts uh, chapters 18, verses 1 through 11. Uh, you can comb through 1 Corinthians and find names of people who are com uh, converted, the household of Stephanus, for example. And then in, in Acts uh, 8, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about, you know, uh, some of you uh, were, you know, you were idolaters, you were, you were adulterers, you were drunkards, you were, um, you were uh, homosexuals. And Paul uses two, two different words there that capture the entire range of homosexual activity. 
and yet you were you were converted, you were cleansed, you were sanctified, uh, etc., by the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit. And um, I think it's J.B. Phillips, the translator of the Bible, did his own translation of the New Testament in the 1960s. He says that that verse uh, in First Corinthians 6, verse 11, I think it is, is the most important verse in the entire Bible. Uh, I, don't, I don't agree with him on that, but it, I think he does. I think he's hit something on the nail on the head. It's a verse that speaks about the incredible power of God to transform human lives. Uh, I've just been reading a book by a man named Jonathan Aitken, um, who was a member of the um, British government uh, with Margaret Thatcher back in the 1990s. And um, I won't go into the details of how he ended up in prison, but he ended up in prison on a perjury charge. And um, he was in prison for 18 months. And um, during those 18 months, at one of the prisons he was at, a man approached him who wanted help with his life because he had heard that T Jonathan Aitken had become a Christian. And the long and the short of it is they started a prayer group. And over the course of about a year, they saw significant numbers of men saved and converted. And um, Aitken says, I, if I'd ever, ever had any doubt about the power of the word of God to change lives, I saw it there in that prison. When God changed the lives of murderers and thieves and a variety of other men who had really violated British law and uh, for whom the, the law had no answer except for locking them up. And he saw these men's lives turned around and the, the book was being written about, oh, quite a number of years after the events. And so he could testify these men's lives have been permanently changed. And uh, some of them he had kept in touch with. Um, it really is quite, quite a a remarkable uh, account. And you see that happening in Acts, as Paul describes some of the worst individuals. There was a Greek verb in, in circulation in Paul's day. It was uh, uh, Corinth, Corinthian, Corinthiazzo, to live like a Corinthian. And it meant to live a debauched, decadent, depraved lifestyle. And yet in this place, uh, this sinkhole of immorality, God does this remarkable work. And um, so Paul's prayer for revival, I've taken that passage, 2 Thessalonians 3, as kind of a model of how God brings about revival. And one of them is through corporate prayer, where God's people gather together corporately, not just individually, um, but corporately. And then I, I, I could illustrate that in the history of the church, the way the Spirit has used corporate prayer. The fact that we gather corporately to pray for revival doesn't mean that revival is guaranteed. Um, I'm very much convic convinced that the revival is God's work. We don't work it up. But if we don't pray for it corporately, you can bet your bottom dollar it's not going to happen. I can't think of a revival that I'm aware of uh, in the history of the church where there has not been some preparatory work by the Holy Spirit in this regard. Uh, I mean, there are revivals. We don't know the details. But there are, there, most of the ones we do know details about, there is always a few men and women who are brought together by the Spirit who are crying out for God to do something fresh and new in their day. Transitioning now, I mean, your book 
discusses several several figures in church history and their thoughts on the Holy Spirit, but we're going to hone in on one. We're going to, in chapter 10, you, you survey some of the elements of C.H. Spurgeon's doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So what does Spurgeon have to teach us about the Spirit and his role in the Christian pastorate? Yeah, Spurgeon, I think, is a very good example of how we have forgotten certain things about the work of the Spirit. Um, so Spurgeon, you know, could talk, he could use the adjective Pentecostal in ways that we cannot. So he would sometimes pray for a Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit. Well, I, I'm quite certain if you, you got up in <clears throat> either of your churches that you are here in, or many of the churches of our hearers and, you know, began by praying in the Sunday morning, Lord, we want a Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit. I'm sure that you'll get some feedback later about what on earth are you up to? Uh, who have you been reading? What have you been watching? Whatever. Um, so Spurgeon had that freedom in a way we do not because the Pentecostal movement had yet to arise. But more importantly than that, I think Spurgeon demonstrates for us a man who was very well aware of human responsibility, the importance of calling sinners to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that the preacher needs to prepare himself, but that ultimately it is the spirit who convicts uh, men and women, shows them their sin, uh, brings them to a living faith, gives them faith, enables them to do 1 Corinthians 12, 3, call on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, and enables them to go on in the Christian life. Um, so he would often, uh, uh, during a preaching, either quietly in his heart or sometimes publicly stop and pray for the Spirit. And he did this on a number of occasions. He stopped and he said, let's pray now that the spirit might come. And as I said, I, if you did that today, I, I suspect it might raise some eyebrows. But I think it, what it does is a remind, Spurgeon reminds us of the necessity of the minister of the gospel, the preacher of the word of God, being a man who walks with the spirit. He walks in the spirit. He's seeking to have a holy life. And he recognizes his, his absolute need that without the spirit, he can do nothing. To paraphrase those words of John, where Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And I think it would not be at all inappropriate, given the context there, where Jesus says, if I don't go away, this paraclete won't come. So our Lord has gone to sit at the right hand of the Father. He has sent the spirit. And therefore, I think we can justly say, without the spirit, we can do nothing ultimately, of profit and of lasting value in the Christian life, corporately or, or privately. So Spurgeon teaches that. Um, Spurgeon, uh, in that um, uh, chapter, I talk about the way Spurgeon emphasizes the importance of reverencing the Spirit, never speaking about the Spirit as an it, uh, recognizing the Holy Spirit as God. Um, so... The idea that if I do these techniques, I'll get more of the spirit seems to me kind of pagan. Um, the Holy Spirit is God. He's Lord. Um, I'm, I'm to be under his authority. Not, I'm not using him. Uh, he's, he's, he's employing me. And then also there are some remarkable events that take place. Um, probably the most, the one that Spurgeon says, and there are about a dozen examples of this, but on one occasion when he was in the Surrey Music Hall, when he first began to preach in London, 
Um, he was uh, 20 years old. And um, the church, uh, New Park Street Chapel, was pretty well full within a couple of years. And so the, it could seat around 900. And so they decided to renovate and build three more, 300 more seats. And so they rented Surrey Music Hall, a huge auditorium that where there would be music concerts held. And um, somebody did their math wrong because the, the, the Surrey Music Hall sat about six to 8,000 people and it was jammed. So here they are adding 300 more seats. <laughs> And not surprisingly, when they went back to the Tabernacle, when they went back to New Park Street, within a few weeks, it was completely jammed again. And they had basically had to lay plans to build the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which would see 6,000. But when they were in the Surrey Music Hall, so you've got this scene then of um, six to 7,000 people. Spurgeon's preaching and he stops and he points to a certain area of the audience and says, there's a man up there and you had a shoe store open last Sunday. And uh, you sold this many shoes for this much money and you made this much profit. You have sold your soul to the devil for this much money. Then he went on preaching. And uh, there was such a man. And the, the details, the, the exact details, the exact amount of money, the exact uh, amount he had made were true. And we know that because uh, about later that week, two men from the, the, the New Park Street Chapel were uh, going around the neighborhood. They were trying to encourage people to come and hear Spurgeon. And they came to this guy's uh, shop and uh, came in and they began to tell him, had, had he heard of Spurgeon? Oh, yes, I, I was there last Sunday, I, you know, at the Surrey Music Hall. And, oh, well, you know, you, what did you think of it? Well, he, you know, he said, well, this is what yeah, he said. It was amazing. I had no idea how this man knew these things. This is what he said. And he said, I've become a Christian. I, I, I cannot figure out how that man knew these things, except God sent him. So the, the, the two, two brothers were thrilled. Um, and they said, well, you'll be back next week, uh, we assume. And you need to touch base and get into the church and so on. And the guy said, no, I won't be coming back next week. And they said, why that? Well, he said, just in case Mr. Spurgeon tells the crowd more about me. And Spurgeon, Spurgeon had a very keen sense of humor. And when they reported that back to him, he must have loved it. You know, this is a quintessential uh, humor. But, I mean, that's, that's astounding. And uh, Spurgeon said, you know, there are about 12 other occasions. And this is tucked away, I think, in, in when Spurgeon's life after his death was uh, the authorized biography was published by his wife and his secretary, J.W. Harold. Um, they... Um, they, it was originally published in two, in four volumes. The Banner of Truth has a, an abridgment in two. And I do, I do not know if the Banner of Truth abridgment has that story, but it, it's in the fourth volume, tucked away near the end. And he has the story. And then he says, there are about a dozen other times this happened to me too. And he doesn't tell us. And uh, I think, again, that is a reminder to us that our division between, you know, charismatic Pentecostal and cessationist over here, charismatic Pentecostal there, cessationist over here, it's, in reality, it's a lot more complex and it's a bit fuzzier. So what would you, what would you, how would you make that out? Is that, does that make Spurgeon a cessationist? Is he not a cessationist? 
Uh, I do think somehow the, the, the question is a wrong question. But I, I, all of that to say, uh, Spurgeon, Spurgeon had a, a very acute theological awareness of the necessity of the Spirit's work in a, minister, in a minister, as well as a practical. Um, I, think a, I think a minister, when he's preaching, needs to be praying at the same time. And if you think you can't do both, you can. Um, I think he needs to be aware of his audience. I remember once giving a, a, a lecture. I was to give a lecture and I won't name where, it wasn't in North America, it was, it was in the British Isles. And uh, I started and I, I quickly realized within a minute or two, what I had prepared was not, was not appropriate for the audience. Um, I could sense that probably very few of them even had a high school education. And, and I just couldn't rely upon what I had prepared. It was a lecture on Baptist history. And so I just changed it. I, I changed it right there. And I, I, I think that does some of that ability to do that comes with um, uh, speaking a while. But I, I, I remember, I look back now, I think, you know, the Holy Spirit enabled me then to help me then. And I, I think we have to have that sense if we're speaking publicly for Christ, preaching or teaching of the Spirit's help. Uh, we need to pray for it. Uh, we need to rely upon it. And I think Spurgeon is a very, very helpful um, figure in, who reminds us of that. Well, um, for our listeners who want to learn more about the Holy Spirit and his work, what are some resources that you would recommend to them? Well, I, I'm biased, obviously. The Empire of the Holy Spirit, the book that I wrote, is, is probably one that I would recommend. Um, the Dynamics of Spiritual Life by Richard Lovelace. Um, that is a really tremendous book. It was, it, it, he basically reshaped my whole thinking about revival. What is revival? How does it come? Um, what is a paradigm of revival? What are, the, what are the main features of revival? What are secondary aspects of revival? What are primary, secondary? Um, a second book that's called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. It was published by InterVarsity back in the 70s, and it's been reprinted. I'm pretty certain I've got a reprint. Um, a second book would be Keep in Step with the Spirit by J.I. Packer. Um, for many years, I read pretty well everything Packer wrote. I, uh, I'm just now reading Alistair McGrath's kind of second biography of Packer. And um, of course, I don't agree with Packer on everything. But what I disagree with him, with him on is very little. And Keep in Step with the Spirit is really his one of his finest books on the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's really responding. He's, he's doing th three things in the book. He's responding to the, the old holiness movement, what's known as the Keswick holiness movement. And he's responding, uh, secondly, to charismatic Pentecostals. And then he's carving out a reformed evangelical perspective on pneumatology. And I think it was Packer who, who crystallized for me that the main work of the Holy Spirit is the glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, he, he gets that from uh, John 16, where Jesus says, um, when he comes, he will glorify me. And I think for me, the acid test of a lot of Pentecostal charismatic claims, I think, I think this is one of the it's, not the, it's not the initial reason, but I think fundamentally is a reason why 
I would have problems identifying with a lot of the charismatic stuff is I don't see that as a raison d'etre of that movement. I see other things going on there. And I'm not saying that all would not be, I think there are some classic Pentecostal preachers like Donald G, um, a British Pentecostal, just a remarkable figure or William Seymour, probably one of the early African-American Pentecostals in uh, Azusa Street in Los Angeles. Um, but that's central. Uh, let me come back as a, on a positive note. That, that's a central theme and, and Packer brings that out really well. So I think in addition to my own work, those two um, uh, uh, books have been enormously helpful. The Dynamics of Spiritual Life and then uh, Keep in Step with the Spirit. And then a third one, is uh, Jonathan Edwards's religious affections. And he lays out in that what is not and what is Christian spirituality. What is the Holy Spirit doing? And it's very, very helpful. Well, just to wrap us up with a, a final question, do you have any other encouragements regarding the person and work of the Holy Spirit for our listeners? Well, I think two things. One is I think uh, pastors and leaders and teachers in, in our churches need to, be, need to be conscious of their need of the Spirit. They need to commit their ministries to his, to his blessing. And in doing so, they need to be very cautious of grieving the Spirit. Um, Ephesians 4. And um, I th that's a real challenge, I think, for Christians. Um, the second is the whole area of the importance of corporate prayer for revival. Um, our great need, I think our great need is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in revival. Um, it's not, it's not, it's not a political answer. And, um, I hope it's increasingly evident to God's people that political answers are not, are not the most pressing need. The most pressing need for us is to, that God's Holy Spirit might be poured out in revival by, by our Lord Jesus. And to that end, if we're serious about that, to that end, probably the most important meeting of the week then is the prayer meeting. And genuine prayer meeting, not a little bit of prayer and another Bible study, but genuine prayer meeting where God's people pray. And the central... Uh, at the heart of their prayers is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we tend to pray for the last part of the, the Lord's prayer, you know, uh, give us this day our daily bread, um, etc. But we need to pray that first part. And the, the outpouring of the spirit is, is vital to that. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Haken on his book, The Empire of the Holy Spirit. He's given us uh, a look at the Nicene-Constantinople Confession. Um, he's also talked about the Spirit's role in sanctification and the Spirit's uh, ministry in relationship to the Word and how the Holy Spirit assists us in prayer. We've seen glimpses into his book where he's talked about uh, expecting the Spirit and elements of the Holy Spirit's um, ministry in Charles Spurgeon's life, and he's now given us some encouragements on the Holy Spirit. So Dr. Haken, thank you so much for taking your time today to join us on the Covenant Podcast to discuss this book. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very, very much.
And to our listeners, we just want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.